Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing good? You look good. Looks like you slept in. All right. Hey, uh, uh, for those of you who thought you were coming to the early service, don't worry about it. we got services all day. Hey, grab your Bibles if you got them. I hope you do. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 22. It's way back towards the beginning of the Bible. It's the sixth book in the Bible. We're in our 10th week, I think, of this series, Go There. And uh, I just got to tell you, I love this time of year. I hope you love this time of year. Uh, the time changes, the, the flowers bloom, the pollen's here, white people change colors, and all that means is that Easter is coming, right? That's what we know, that Easter will be here in a couple weeks, and so um, <clears throat> I want to encourage you to look on the back of your bulletin and choose one of the non-Sunday morning times to be at one of our many, many, many Easter services, okay? Thursday night works, and by the way, if you're fasting and praying, it's been a special struggle this year, and you come on Thursday night, Jesus told me you could break your fast on Thursday instead of Sunday, so that's his... Grace and gift to you. So we'd love you to do that one, or 1.30 or 5.22, or we have a Saturday uh, family carnival, and I will be here live for that one this year here, and, uh, but some of you didn't even know that I wasn't here live last year because the video system is so good, and here's how I know. Anytime I teach on video uh, here at San Pablo, you text me during the sermon and say, hey, how about settle a fight I'm having with my wife right now? Are you really up there? And I always text back, why are you texting while I'm trying to preach? Pay attention. And then you apologize. So that lets me know that you don't really get what's happening. So that's great. All right. So pick one of those, pray, invite your friends, neighbors, and uh, we need to make the most room during our Sunday morning services that we can. Hey, so grab your Bibles, uh, Joshua chapter 22. Today, what we're going to talk about is, is friendship and accountability. And that baptism video was right on, that, that we can't do this thing on our own. And in fact, we weren't even intended to do life on our own. You see, all the way back in Genesis, we talk about this all the time, when God created the very first man, he gathered the dust of the earth, or the Adam, Adam in Hebrew means dirt, so he pulls the dirt together, he makes the form of a man, but he's not a human being yet, and he breathes the breath of life, or the ruach of life, into Adam, and then Adam becomes a living being, is face to face with his heavenly father and his creator, and then God says for the very first time, something's not good. You see, up until that point, he, he, he says something, he makes something, he goes, that's good. He does it over and over and over, and then at this point, when Adam is all by himself, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, that doesn't just mean that the brother needs a date, which is a fact, because if you leave a man alone, like in the garden, he'll burn the whole place down, so that's true, we need help. But it also just means, because Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, that we were wired for relationship, because God in and of himself is an eternal relationship. You see, from eternity past into eternity future, we serve one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That God in and of himself is a perfect relationship with God. That's why when the book of 1 John says God is love, that God is both the subject and the object of the love of God. And God loves God so much that his love spills out into the canvas of creation, and here we are. And so the reason you have this thing in you that wants like real deep abiding friendships and relationships. It's because you were created in the image of God. You were wired for relationship. And what's happening in our world is as our social media connectivity increases exponentially and our actual face-to-face -face relationships seem to be de decreasing. I mean, I, I checked my Facebook and, um, and I have like 8,500 friends. How ridiculous is that? I mean, that's crazy, right? And honestly, every service it goes up because I say that and everybody's like, oh, I got to get on there with friend. All right, great. But, but it's just kind of weird. Uh, did you know I grew up in a town, Dillon, South Carolina only had 5,000 people in the whole town. You understand? 
So it's just kind of a weird thing. Like, I don't know all those people, but we feel like we do. Just because you like somebody's uh, picture of their dinner does not mean you're friends. What God, God has formed you in such a way that you could have actual friends, like face-to-face friends. And, and God would desire that you would have these kind of friends that really bleed into more like family, like people with refrigerator rights in your life. You know what that is? Where they just walk in without knocking, which gets awkward, you know, but whatever. They just come on in, go straight to the refrigerator like Kramer and just get what they want. He, he desires that you would have those kind of friends and good godly friends. Coach Bully, the guy that led me to Jesus, used to always say, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. And so one of the big things that we want to happen here at 1122, man, we're, we're glad there's a lot of people here. That's great. But if you stop with the crowd event and you don't step into these deep abiding relationships that put you towards walking with Jesus, then you're missing the whole point of what we're trying to do and make disciples and make disciples. And what we're going to see here in Joshua chapter 22 is we're going to see some friends, some, this community that loves each other enough that, does it, that do, isn't just satisfied with kind of the surface level relationship, like how you doing fine, but they really dig in for the betterment of each other. So Joshua chapter 22 starts out this way. It says, at that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you've obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you, and you've not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers. That was last week's sermon. And as he promised them, therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possessions lie which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. That's important. Verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so Joshua blessed them and he sent them away and they went to their tents. Here's what's important. All right, you kind of need to read uh, Joshua 22 and flip to the maps, like in the back. You know, I know you've never really looked at those, but they're important. Um, You remember when Joshua, when God shows up to Joshua in chapter one, it says, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be afraid for the land that that I promised to your fathers, I'm gonna give to you. And then they crossed over the Jordan land, over the Jordan, into the promised land. Well, there were two and a half tribes in the book of Numbers that Moses said, hey, for you two and a half tribes, you guys are gonna live on the east side of the Jordan, but for everybody else, you're gonna live on the west side of the Jordan. But even though you're divided by the Jordan, it's still one nation, it's still one family, it's still one body of believers. And so for 22 chapters, this is important, for 22 chapters, these two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they have crossed over the Jordan with their brothers and sisters, and they have been fighting for the promised land at great expense to themselves, even though their part of it has been taken care of for at least 22 chapters. And you would say, why would you do that? Why would you put your neck on the line uh, for something that you don't even get anything out of? Because that's just what friends and family do. You see... Real friends and real family at great expense and cost to themselves are willing to lay it down for their brothers and sisters. And that's what these two and a half tribes have been doing. But now God has given the promised land to the people. And so Joshua says, you can go back home. You can cross back over the Jordan and go back to where your tents and your cities are all set up. And so they do. And that's what verses 7 through 9 are all about. So if we pick it up in verse 10, it says, In one day, that's the two and a half tribes, When they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they built there an altar by the Jordan. 
an altar of imposing size. And so if you're tracking along with the soundtrack of Jordan, I mean, of Joshua, right here, everything changes. You know, it gets real like creepy, dun, dun, dun. What is this imposing size altar, okay? A little suspicious. Verse 11, and the people of Israel heard it said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Verse 12, and when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. So here's what happens. <clears throat> the two and a half tribes that have been fighting for Israel for 22 chapters, they get done and they're heading back home and on their way out of town, they stop and they build this altar. And then the nation of Israel hears about it. I don't know if they check the Twitter feed or maybe it is Facebook or maybe it's just at the beauty salon, like you ain't gonna believe what Gad did. Like, uh-uh, you know, it's that kind of thing. And then word, because I don't know if y'all know this, church people talk, okay? Maybe it's prayer request in disciple group. We better pray for Reuben, all right? They've been worshiping idols and stuff. Should we say something? No, don't say anything. Let's just pray about it, all right? And so word begins, to, word begins to spread. And here's what's just true, okay? This is what's true. Do you know why you have conflict in your life? I love to go to this verse often. It's James chapter four, verse one. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's a very direct dude, all right? Maybe it's from growing up with Jesus. He's like, all right, quit with the stories about doves. Can you just answer my question, all right? And so he asked this question in James 4, one. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, if I were to ask you that question, everybody, I mean, just think about your last fight that you had. For many of you, it was on your way here this morning, was it not? I mean, there ain't no fight like a good on the way to church fight, right? You just hollering and screaming, and you're in the swagger wagon like, come on! And then you show up, and how are you doing? Just blessed and highly favored. How about you? All right, so if I were to ask you why, why do you have that fight? I know, here's what we answer, okay? Well, this other person did me wrong, all right? The reason you're aggravated with your boss, you know, the reason I'm aggravated is my spouse, the reason I'm aggravated with my kids, whatever. So James says, you know why you have fights and quarrels? He, he answers his own question, which is crazy in the Bible, because a lot of times the way the Bible will do it, it will ask a question, tell a story about goats, and you've got to figure it out, okay? But James answers it. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It's James 4.1. You want something, and you don't get it. That's it. You see, you want this thing, but this actually happens. Another way to say it is that the reason that you have fights and quarrels or disappointment or aggravation or whatever you want to call it is because there's a difference between what you expect and what you experience, at work, the reason you're frustrated with your boss or your employees or your coworkers is because you expect one thing and you experience another. The reason you get frustrated with your kids or your spouse or me or whatever it is, your church, is because you expect one thing, but you experience something else. And there's a gap between that expectation and that experience. And in between, the size of that gap represents the size of the pain involved. And here's what's crazy. You get to determine what you put in that gap. And every single one of us, every day of our lives, either fill that gap with trust or suspicion. With trust or suspicion. And I did not make that language up. If you Google Andy Stanley, fill the gap with trust, you'll hear an incredible sermon just on that. But that's exactly what's happening right there. You see, the nation of Israel expects these two and a half tribes on their way over the Jordan to worship the one true God. And when they hear that they built this altar, there's a gap between what they expect and what they experience. And a bunch of them begin to fill the gap with suspicion. They immediately jump to those bunch of idol worshiping, good for nothing brothers and sisters of ours. Let's get ready for war and let's wipe them out. 
But when you get to, when you get to verse 13, what you're going to see here is that cooler heads prevail, praise God. Because most of the time when we get, we get mad, most of the time what we need to do is get informed before we get mad. Most of the time, when you hear that thing about that person and somehow they've let you down, most of the time, we need to get informed before we get mad. But you know what we usually do? Typically, the first thing we do is get mad. And then we begin to, to create a little alliance for our team, don't we? We begin to big, build a case for ourselves, and, and this is my favorite one, and then we begin to have those imaginary conversations in our head about what we would have said or could have said or I might say. Do you ever do that? And can we just agree, are you not amazing in those imaginary conversations in your head. I mean, fellas, how many times you've been driving home when she says, and I'm going to say, and then I'm going to quote that verse, and then the Shekinah glory of God is going to fall down on her, and she's going to thank the Lord that she got to be cleaved unto me. Does it ever go that way for you? Me either. Okay, so verse 13, here's how it actually rolls out, though. So you got one group of people being suspicious. They're getting ready for war. How dare you let me down this way? I'm going to kill you. And then, thank goodness, verse 13, and then the people of Israel, they sent to the people of Reuben and to the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phineas. Anybody think Ferb as soon as you hear that? Anybody with me? Okay. Uh, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they, here's important, and they, what's that word? said to them. What? See, you see, you know what we do typically when we hear, when we're disappointed in somebody? Now, um, typically what we do is we talk about people instead of two people. Or, or a lot of times we just pray about it. Man, we really need to pray about Ted. That joker is a wreck, man. Let's just pray. Should we say something? No, no, don't say anything. We'll just talk to God, and then hopefully God will talk to him. I think God might be going, maybe you should talk to him. I mean, I appreciate you talking to me about it. I already knew what Ted was doing, okay, a long time ago, all right? I preordained all the steps of his life, okay? I got it, but, uh, and I pre you should pray for Ted, no doubt about that. But maybe instead of just praying, maybe you need to start saying too. That's what the nation of Israel does here. And it's not just their idea. You're gonna find this theme throughout the entire scripture. From the very beginning, when people are created in the image of God, this, this mutually submitted relationship to one another, all the way to the book of Revelation, where the Bible says, God says, and I will be with my people, they will be my people, and I will be their God. You see, we have not been saved as a community, but we've been saved into community. It's just true. Jesus preaches on it extensively in Matthew chapter 18. If you've got your Bibles, flip over there or scroll to there. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says this, beginning in verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, which I think he could have said when your brother sins against you. Good not he? Now, I, don't know if, I don't know if you know this. Do you all know there's some church people that still sin? Have you met them? Maybe read about them? Maybe you shaved with them this morning in the mirror? Uh, but if your brother sins against you, here's what he says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Listen, this is a game changer right here. If as a body of believers, we simply instituted this one relational practice, it would change, it would transform every relationship that you and I have. If we just talked to people instead of about people. Or instead of getting mad, we got informed. Instead of, you know what I've heard, we just went and talked directly to the person. It would change everything. 
Usually the reason we don't is because we're afraid. We're more concerned about what the person thinks about us than we are actually concerned with the person. That we're more into the friendship because we get at what we get out of it than we are the friend. And God wants us to love the friend more than the friendship. And so Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. So the first thing you got to check is, is this my brother or sister in Christ? You see, because if it's not your brother and sister in Christ, then do not pass go, do not collect $200, and you're not pointing out their individual sin against you. What you're pointing out is that by nature and nurture, we are all wretched, black-hearted sinners, and we need a Savior. And maybe you would thank God that you could use this individual example of being sinned against to be an open door for you to talk about the reason that I'm going to forgive you by grace is because I have been forgiven by the grace of God poured out by Jesus on the cross. And you, you shift immediately to an evangelistic kind of conversation about who Jesus is as your forgiver. And because you have been forgiven much, then you forgive. But if that person is a brother or sister in Christ, it says, if your brother sins against you. This is why, this is why it is important to be rooted in the word of God. Because there's a big difference between your preferences and God's precepts. But Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is called reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, how many of you, how many of you, just by the way God made you, you are conflict averse? Anybody conflict averse in here? Okay, look around. See how they won't even raise their hands good? They're like, oh, sort of, maybe. I'm not sure. Are people looking at me? Okay, right. How about, how about some of you, you love conflict? I mean, you would sign up for it. Anybody with me? All right, yeah, me too. Here's the problem when I enter into conflict. It is not my hesitation to enter into conflict. In fact, I kind of like it, okay? I mean, people, and I know that's no shock to you. I mean, you know, that's what I do every weekend, just come in here and punch in the face and let Jesus fix it, all right? So that's just what I do. The deal here, though, is Jesus says the point of entering into those difficult conversations in that conflict, the point is not to be right, the point is reconciliation. And so when you step into this, we restore your brother and sister with a whole lot of grace and a whole, a whole lot of gentleness. Because, because if they listen, essentially what happens is this. Because, because Jesus Christ came on a mission to reconcile us unto the Father, and we know that personally, then he gives us this ministry of reconciliation. So Jesus Joshua, all throughout the scriptures says, hey, listen, we are in this thing together. That when your brother or sister sins or they're on a path that leads to destruction, you don't just talk about them. You go and you talk to them. Verse 16, this is what Phineas says. Uh, verse 16 in Joshua 22, this is what Phineas says. He says, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, which does not always put you on the defenses when somebody comes up and they're like, now, Pastor, I don't really believe this, but there's a lot of people in my row, and here's what they've been saying. So that's kind of, kind of how Phineas starts. He goes, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which not even yet we have cleansed ourselves? for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord. So what, what Phineas is talking about, Phineas was there in Numbers chapter 25 when the, when the people of Israel began to um, yoke themselves with the bales of Peor. They began to worship false gods and there was sexual immorality. There was all these awful things. And so 
what began to happen is it did not just affect the individuals that were committing the sin. It began to affect the entire nation of Israel to the point where 24,000 people die from this plague because of the sin of a few. And so Phineas is coming in. He's like, what are you guys doing? Listen, we have been down this road before, and it led to utter destruction. What are you doing? He goes on to say in verse 18, he says, that you too must turn away this day from the following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. In other words, what Phineas is saying when he goes to the two and a half tribes, he's like, look, brothers and sisters, we are in this thing together. We are in this thing together. I love you so much. God loves you so much that I am okay with making you a little uncomfortable right now for the sake of all of us following after the Lord. Now, here's what I'm telling you. We, as a church, we are in this thing together. We are a body. We are a family. We are the bride of Christ. Now, here's the thing. As we begin to push into this, there's kind of two different camps here. There are some of you in this room. It's just a handful. And you were like, so, Pastor, are you calling me to go and call out members of our church and point out the sin in their life? Okay? And then you start to get a little excited. Your heart starts beating. You already got a list right now. Okay, her and him, and I'm going to send a podcast to that one, all right? And you're like, finally, I have really been waiting on the moment where you asked me to go and point out the sin in everybody's life. Okay, you people scare me. You should relax, get a hobby, you know, meditate. I don't know, chill, okay? So that's some of you. Uh, and then there's this whole, most of us in the room, good, red-blooded Americans are like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Man, I'm not going to say anything to this person at our church that's going down a path that might lead to their destruction because, you know, it's none of my business. I mean, isn't that like the 11th commandment? Thou shalt make it none of thy business? I mean, I think that's in there somewhere. I mean, I thought it was a personal relationship with Jesus, and it's just between me and him. And what you do, you do, okay? God bless your ministry. But I'm just, it's about me and Jesus. And so I don't really think I should do this. Yeah, well, the basic problem with that pushback would be the Bible. So here's, here's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The whole, the whole chapter is about how Jesus, once, he is, once he's crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, sends the Holy Spirit, and we are currently believers in Jesus. We are currently the body of Christ here on earth. And he says, like, each local expression of the body, it's like a body, like your body. A whole bunch of different parts come together to make up one body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 25, he says, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, then all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You see, again, we have not been saved as a community, but we have been saved to community. Like, we haven't been saved as a family. It's not like, like you don't get in just because your grandma believed in Jesus, and you don't get in just because you attend church. I've told you this before. Attending church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sticking your head in the oven makes you a biscuit. That is not how it works, okay? It is an individual response to the gospel. But you were saved into a family. You were saved into a body. You were saved into a community. And we need each other, and we do this thing together. Now, there are a whole lot of people today that are like, I don't need a church to be a follower after Jesus. Um... You cannot find in the scriptures anybody that tries to do the Lone Ranger Christian thing. 
It, it would be like if you bumped into somebody this afternoon and they were in a baseball uniform and you're like, hey, you play baseball? Yeah, I'm a baseball player. What team do you play for? Oh, no, no, I'm not on a team. I don't need a team to be a baseball player. Yeah, you do, bro. Without a team, you're just a grown man in tight pants with an oversized mitt. You're silly, okay? Without a, without a team, you, you're, not, you're not really a, a baseball player. And, and I've told you this before. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, you know, we're like a body, like a human body. And a disconnected member of the body, is, that is not the way it was intended. Like at the end of the service, if you looked under your chair and there was just a foot, like a, a human foot, what would you think? You wouldn't think, well, I, nobody can tell this foot what part of the body they need to be a part of. No. You would think something has gone horribly wrong. That's what you would think. And you would probably, you wouldn't want to sit there anymore. And you would know the future of the foot. It's going to shrivel. It's going to die. It's going to stink. And let's just be honest. It's gross. An attached foot is pretty gross. A detached foot, over the top. This is over the top. I really believe that heaven looks at the detached member from the body and is like, something's gone horribly wrong. It's just gross. You're going to shrivel and you're going to die. You've got to be a part of the body. And here's why. Because we need each other. God actually designed it that way that we would need each other, that we would be in, in mutually submitted relationships one to another as friends and as family. I had the opportunity yesterday, it's a great opportunity to play in the Tim Tebow uh, Celebrity Golf Tournament. All right, it's great. Played last year, played this year. And so you get to play in a scramble. And I play very consistently, very religiously, like, right? Like once a year, like some people go to church, you know? So right around Easter, that's my one time to play. That's basically it. And I'm terrible. And the reason they invite me on the team is you gotta have like a D player for their handicap to, you know, work out for you. That's me. All right, so, um, so we start on hole 14. And we get to hole 17 at the TPC, okay? And you know, it's the most famous par three probably in the world. And we step up, and our first guy gets up. He's a former Major League Baseball player, all right? And it translates. He can hit it, and he smacks it about eight feet from the pin. And the, and the gallery, there's a gallery. There's like two or 300 people. Pastor Matt, there's thousands of people up on this hill, all right? Now, I'm used to playing in front of three or 400 less people than are on that hill. You know what I mean? I'm the guy, when the cart comes up behind me, I'm like, can y'all turn around and don't watch? That's, that's how I am. And so our first guy, he puts it close. The next guy, he puts it closer, all right? Jeff Moore, he's right here on the front row. He hits it, he hits on the right side of the pin and rolls by it at like a foot. He won the closest to the pin and the crowd goes wild. I mean, it's great. And then I'm up next. Now, last year at the same tournament, I stepped up and I put one on the green. And when it landed on the green, I got this little wimpy golf clap. And I was like, you people have to be kidding me. I just put it on the green on 17 people, and they stood up and they roared. And so this year, that was already happening in my mind, okay? And now I step up, and here we go, and backswing, and I chunk it. And it goes a good 25 yards total. <laughs> Bloop, into the water, okay? But Jeff had one right by the pen, and so we walk over there, tap it in for birdie. Later that day, a pastor friend in, uh, of mine in town, he texts me and said, how'd you do on 17? And I text back, birdie. <laughs> this is a team sport. We need each other. Okay, now I was not a total drain to the team. You just need to know this. When, by the time we get to the 13th hole, um, one of the cool things about the Tebow tournament, at almost every, at almost every hole, there's, like, there's either food or some kind of game that you can earn a mulligan. And in a couple of places, uh, they have like these little massage chairs, all right? So I go lay in the chair, and I can hear my team teeing off. And it's just like thud, 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 thud. It's not going well. 
And so then, you know, I'm just getting ministered to. And then after that, my team goes, we've got nobody on the green, Joby. It's up to you. That's terrible. All right, that is a terrible plan. And so I step up. It's a par three, number 13. And I hit it as good as I got it. And there's water around the left. And it lands on, a, on a, like a railroad tie and bounces straight up like 100 feet and lands right on the green. <laughs> just did. And I told our team, if they would study their Bible more, that kind of stuff would happen to them too, okay? <laughs> so it's about 50 feet away from the hole, all right? Maybe 30, I'm going with 50, and I just hit a worm. I mean, I laser right at it, hits the back of the cup, pops up and falls right in for a birdie. Thank you very much. Now, why do I tell you that? Because I wanted you to know about the 13th hole. I could have stopped the illustration at 17, but why? Okay, we're all here. We might as well talk about my day yesterday. In that moment, all the people that like play golf throughout the year, they needed me, the weakest link. You see, you see, we need each other. We need each other in each other's lives, holding each other accountable, loving each other enough to step in and having these kind of tough conversations. Why? Because we're a body. And all throughout the scriptures, we are put together as a body because we need each other. Now again, some people will push back and say, hey, but you know, but the Bible says, uh, judge not lest you be judged. Or the way we'll say it today is, you know, don't judge me. Or I've even heard some people, a very popular tattoo right now is, only God can judge me. Listen, God doesn't want to be the only one to judge you. God doesn't want us to be judgmental and condemning, because therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But God for sure wants us to point out the places in our life that are going to lead to destruction in our own life. That's why he's put us together. I mean, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 7, verse 1. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? I think Jesus is being funny here. Jesus is like, hey, bro, how do you think you can get the piece of sawdust out of her eye? And you got a telephone pole in your face, Okay. So the first thing you got to do is hold up the mirror of the Word of God, extract the telephone pole, but then he doesn't stop there. He says, first, that's what you do. First, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That is the opposite of it's none of my business. In fact, Jesus would say, it's so much your business. Make sure you are right and surrendered to me so that with, with a lot of delicate delicateness that you can take that little speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye. So my question to you is this. Do you have a friend like that? I mean, do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend that does not take fine as an answer from you? You see, because let me tell you, every married man knows this in here. Like, wives lie like crazy. Fine don't mean fine. You riding out of a car all mad looking out in the window. But what's wrong with you? You okay? I'm fine. Well, why are you looking out the window so long? I mean, what's going on over there? Do you have the kind of people that, that when they ask you, how are you doing, and you lie to them, they will not take the lie? You see, you need those kind of people, not because they're better than you, but so often, you ever notice how it's easy to see everybody else's sin, it's so hard to see your own sin? Is that just me? You see, you ever notice, like you hear a message, and you may, immediately, what do we think? Man, my mother-in-law needs to hear this. We never considered, oh, that was for me, Okay. 
You need some people in your life that are watching the trajectory of your life. And let me tell you what I want in my life. I want people in my life that if they see the trajectory of my life heading over the cliff, that I'm not just a prayer request for them and then a, a memorial service after I go over, be like, oh, that dummy, we've been praying for him. Quit praying, start saying. I want some people standing in the way going, hey, 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 danger, danger, turn around. This path that you're on leads somewhere that you do not want to go. What if we say it this way? Um, remember back, remember back the worst mistake that you've ever made. The worst mistake. I mean, for some of you, it takes that long, right? Just think back, the worst decision that you ever made that caused the most pain to you, that blew up your marriage, that blew up your family, that blew up your finances, that blew up your health, that sent you down a road that if you, I mean, think about what, you, what would you do in this moment to go back 10 years or five years to the months leading up to that life-altering decision? What would you give to have somebody step in in that moment and say, hey, bro, can we talk? Man, I, I see the way you're doing family. I see the way you're treating your wife. I see the way you're treating your kids. Hey, man, don't sign that. Don't buy that. Don't lease that. Don't partner with him. Don't ask her out. Do not say yes. What would you give to go back to that moment, knowing what you know now, to have a friend that would love you enough to tick you off, and you could probably get all defensive. Don't judge me because I ain't trying to judge you. I'm trying to help you. Maybe God has placed me in your life. Wouldn't you give almost anything to be able to go back to that moment? to save yourself from all kind of pain and all kind of agony? Well, you can't do a lot about the past. You can be forgiven of it and you can learn from it. But you know what you can do? You can establish those kind of accountable relationships in your life from this day forward so you never go down one of those trails again. You see, this isn't a message about go get them, tiger. This is a message about in inviting that kind of accountability in your life. I mean, even during the sermon, right now, maybe you could even send a text and be like, hey, bro, I need you to ask me those kind of questions in my life. Do you have it in your life? You can. Verse 19. This is great. Phineas keeps going. It says, but now, this is Phineas talking, but now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over unto the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourself a possession among us, only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. In other words, um, what Phineas does is he doesn't just come with criticism, he comes with solutions. At great expense to himself. He's like, look guys, if y'all are having trouble, just move in with us. If that's what it takes for you to walk rightly with the Lord, then don't move over there. Move in, we'll give up some of our land, we'll give up some of our possessions for you. You see, here's the reality. Please hear me on this. Good, godly friends that point you to Jesus, it's like a retirement account. If you wait until you need it to try to have them, it's way too late. That's why you need to be in a disciple group now. You need to build those kind of friends that are just there so that you have those people that are there for you when you need them to be. And listen, our church, we will, as, a, like as an organization, we will try to do our best to care for you. But our care team... Our staff that makes up our care team, I mean, they're incredible. They're godly. They love people, you know. I mean, they're, they're awesome people. And they will come visit you in the hospital, and we will come visit you and pray for you and all those kind of things. But our church staff will never be able to take care of you like your church family friends can take care of you. It's just different. If I come see you in the hospital, I'm usually look, like looking on a little note card. Okay, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, all right. And walk in the room. Hello, Miss Elizabeth. Usually the one in the bed, you know what I mean? But I don't know. 
I don't know, you don't know where you've been, I don't know your family. You need some people around you that love you and pray for you before you need people around you to love you and pray for you. And if I could just say this uh, with all the tenderness I can muster, and if you go to disciple groups and you say, well, I'm not getting much out of it, maybe that's not the point for you. Maybe you are the one to be contributing to and not necessarily receiving so much from. Because I promise you, there will come a day and you will need the one another's of the church to love one another. But you can't wait. You can't wait until you're in crisis mode. When you call us with your crisis, the first question we're going to ask back is, so what disciple group are you in? And, and that's because we want, to, we want to love and equip and walk along every single person that would consider 1122 their church. And our limited staff, there's no way we can do this. And so that's why we want you to start building these kind of friendships before you actually need these kind of friendships. Verse 20, he says, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and the wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. In other words, we are in this thing together. And so a part of, a part of what we're trying to do this year is help you get connected is help you get connected. And a bunch of you, thousands of you have signed up and gotten into a disciple group and praise God and thank you. And some of you, you just feel like that's too big of a step. And some of you men are like, what are you doing in a disciple group? I mean, will you sing Kumbaya and talk about your feelings? And I ain't doing that. Okay, I don't blame you. If that's what it is, I'm not going either. That is not what it is. And so the reason that we have a bunch of events this year is so that you could get to know some other folks in our church and realize that we need each other. You see, we've got, we've got marriage retreats, multiple marriage retreats this year, okay? And I can tell you, talk to somebody whose marriage is blown up, and they would say we would pay whatever it, whatever it costs if we could go back in time and salvage it. And part of the reason you need to go is this. See, you think your marriage is all jacked up, but you think the person next to you, you think they're awesome because they look awesome. And here's why you, here's why you think that about them, because you don't know them very well. I mean, if we all got real honest, man, I'm telling you, we're all jacked up. Me too. And a part of what this big dysfunctional family is, is that we get in here and we need each other, loving one another and holding each other accountable. Men, maybe you don't trust me yet on joining the disciple group, but come hunting with me or go surfing with Pastor Ben or go play golf with, with the Ryans. And then what you're going to find out is, wow, these are like, like I thought church guys were, you know, this other kind. I thought they wore robes and just prayed all the time. Not at 1122, all right? We just play golf and go surf in the name of Jesus. And then what's going to happen is you're going to be involved in one another's lives. Because listen, men, where else can you talk about the things that really matter? There's nowhere in your life. You can't be at the gym like pumping iron with your brother and be like, hey, man, you ever just feel kind of insecure? Guys, I I do now. We're not working out together anymore. Okay, so you got to have some kind of, like, I mean, real, like a band of brothers. That's what this is about. And ladies, we've got a women's retreat coming up. And let me tell you why you need to go, okay? And I know you'll get offended, but you'll get over it. Y'all are kind of terrible at this. You really are. Imagine having a group of women that loves one another and is praying for one another instead of being in competition with each other. Imagine that kind of love and vulnerability among the the women here of Church of 1122. You see, that's what that's all about. The reason that we have those things that you can sign up for online, the reason is so that we can accomplish what Joshua's talking about here in chapter 22, what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18, what, what the apostle John's talking about in Revelation 21, that we need each other, that we are a family, that we are a community. Now, 
Do you have those kind of relationships in your life? Do you have the kind of people that don't mind hurting your feelings for the sake of your life and your heart? See, I do. I invited them in on purpose, gave them a job description. They're called elders here. Let me tell you the great thing about our elders. They are not impressed with me. I mean, they are not at all. They love me. They say wonderful, encouraging things off, you know, often. If they didn't think I was supposed to be the lead pastor, they'd fire me today and, you know, I guess they'd work on my golf career. I'm not sure what I would do. But they do not mind hurting my feelings for the sake of my wife, for the sake of my life, for the sake of my children, and for the sake of this church. They love me too much to just, just blow smoke. In fact, I mean, they get real personal. They got access to my bank accounts. They, every decision we make, all that sort of stuff, I invite that in my life. Here's why. Y'all ever heard of a pastor and it's going really, really well and the whole thing blows up? Yeah, about every two or three weeks you hear that, right? And so our elders make it a habit of diving into the places that have blown up other people. I mean, really specific, really intimate questions. Lars Peterson, the chairman of the Board of Elders, about once a month he'll say, uh, Joby, are you looking at porno? And I'm like, don't call it porno, man. It sounds so like from the 70s. I don't even own a VHS, so no, I, what, that's gross. Like pornography is an issue, and the deal, you know what I mean? That's something, but porno, what are you doing? Now, if that's too much for you, one, you're not going to like our church. Secondly, that you need accountability in your life. You need somebody that loves you enough that asks an awkward question because they love you more than they love what you think about them in that moment. So who do you have in your life like that? Now, here's the thing. When elders come to me and need to point out a blind spot, I have ears to hear because I have invited them into my life. How about you? You need those kind of people. Because I gotta be honest, and I know this is church, no place for honesty, but, but I gotta be honest. When random people just come up to me to point out all the sin in my life, my knee-jerk reaction is I get super defensive. I do. I, I lean back, I don't lean forward. I start, I start loading up my guns with Bible verses because I know more Bible verses than you. And so when you, because so here's typically what happens. When you come to try to take the sawdust out of my eye, I go, oh, I really appreciate that. I know you've done that in love. It's interesting that you would bring that up because I felt like there's a, a telephone pole in your face that I've been meaning to talk about with you, you know? That's just because I like to be right. And so I know in my life, I have to pre-decide that here's a group of people that I have ears to hear. How about you? And when people come at you, what do you do? Are you defensive? Do you try to be Right? Or you don't want to be righteous before the Lord. You see, here's what's amazing about the two and a half tribes. When, when Phineas comes at them and says, what are you doing? Do you know what they could have responded with? They could have gone with, who do you think you are coming up in our face because we built this altar of witness? If you only knew the reason we built it, I've been, we've been putting our neck on the line for 22 chapters for your people. Now we're just trying to go back to our tents and do this little worship service. What's your problem? But they don't respond that way. Look how they respond. It says, then the people, verse 21, then the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for the building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Verse 24, no, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord and the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. You see, these two and a half tribes, here's what they knew, is that um, 
separation and lack of intention and lack of proximity don't typically make for a good recipe for friendship. And here's what they're saying. There's gonna be a day and everybody doesn't have our shared history. And we've got this Jordan River dividing us and you. And what we don't want to happen ever, ever, ever is for our tribes to grow apart. You see, we're one family. We're all in this together. And what a shame would it be if our children did not worship the same God together. And so they say, therefore we said, let us now build this altar, not for burnt offerings or for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. Here's what they're saying. We built this altar so that every time your people would see it and our people would see it, it would be a reminder that we're the same family, that we worship the one true God. You see, when, when sometimes people come in, and it, it might sting a little for people to point out some, some sin in your life. And a lot of times in our defensiveness, we can see that as like a wedge in between the relationship. And what they're saying is, no, 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 what you saw as a wedge in between our relationship is actually an altar of witness to say, no, this thing is, this thing is worth the struggle that we are in this thing together. And so Phineas hears all that. He hears all that, and you get to verse 30, and it says, when Phineas, the priest and the chief of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel, who were with him, they heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. This ever happened to you? Like, you've got this whole case against somebody because you heard it? And you do decide to go talk to him instead of about him, and you're ready, man. I mean, you've got guns blazing. You've got your whole, you've got your intro, you've got your three points, you've got your closer. I mean, you can't wait for the moment where you go, did you order the code red? I mean, you're there. <laughs> and so you start into it a little bit, and then you start hearing their story and their perspective and where they are and what their intentions were. And then you go, oh, oh, I didn't know that. You see, this is why the Lord wants us to get informed, not just get mad. This is why the Lord wants us to talk to people and not about people and not to jump to conclusions and love people enough to, to be willing to make them uncomfortable for a little while so you could actually get at the heart of this that we need one another. And so, verse 31, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, and the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know, this is important, that the Lord is in our midst. You see, when accountability is done right, with a lot of grace and a lot of gentleness, and, and you're trying to hold people accountable for them, for reconciliation and not for you to be right, guess what? The Lord is right at work in the midst of that. You see, one of the most often misquoted verses or quoted out of context verses by, usually it's by worship leaders that don't read a lot of Bible, they just read like one verse at a time, is they say, where two or three are gathered, the Lord is in our midst. You've heard that before, right? Well, do you know that's actually in Matthew 18 as a result of conflict? That's, where, that's the context in which that verse is. And here's what it means. If you've got a conflict with your brother, you go talk to him face to face. And if he listens to you, then there's reconciliation. But if he won't listen to you, you go get two or three. Not to ambush him, but so that you can have an objective third party speak into this broken relationship. And if that doesn't work, you take him to the church. Not the church service, but like the leaders of the church to help broker that reconciliation. And if they still won't come to their senses, the Bible says, treat them as a tax collector. How did Jesus treat tax collectors? He died for them. He rolled out the red carpet for them. And in that, in that, when you, when you are brave enough, when you have the power and the gentleness of the Holy Spirit, 
just kind of anointed with the grace of God, that you step into those kind of relationships for the sake of reconciliation, God says, I'm all over that. Where two or three come together like that, not trying to be right, but to be righteous before the Lord, God says, yeah, yeah, that's the recipe in which I work right there. So here's the point. Here's the point of all of this, is that a true friend is in the business of getting into your business. A true friend is in the business of getting into your business. And then the question is, do you got friends like that? Now, relationships are not easy, but we try to make them simple here at 1122. I want to ask you, what steps do you need to take to have that kind of friendship in your life? Some of you just need to go to an individual and say, hey, if you ever see me going on a path, I want to give you permission now. So you don't have to wonder if you have permission or not. I want to give you permission now to speak into my life. For some of you, there's a tough discussion that you've got to have with somebody that you love so much. And I am not telling you to, but you cannot deny that right now the Holy Spirit is like, yep, you got to make that phone call. And let me say, uh, Jesus said face-to-face. He, he didn't say text, and he didn't say Facebook, and he didn't say tweet. He said, use that thing on your face called your mouth and go find them face-to-face and talk to them and not about them. Some of you might need to have, for the sake of their relationship with the Lord or their family or their business, you might have to have that kind of discussion and not go, oh, it's none of my business. But if you're a true friend, you're in the business of making it your business for their sake. Don't try to be right. Just try to reconcile. And so <clears throat> some of you need to stop getting mad and start getting informed. You'll do that by going face to face. And then I'll just ask you this. What faith step do you need to take to get connected? What faith step do you need to take? Some of you need to sign up for one of those retreats to take that first step. Some of you need to grab the respond card, fill it out, drop it off in the Connect Center, and join a disciple group this very week. And so the way we decided to end the service is with communion. And if you're sitting on the ends, you've got communion elements under you. Just leave them for right now. We'll pass them out right after the prayer. The word communion is common union. It's two words just jammed together. That's what it is. And the common union that we have, it's not our political beliefs, it's not our, our ethnicities. It's not culturally. It's not our size, shape, color. Our common union is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, when Jesus introduced the, the Lord's Supper, it was at his table. And he invited all that would follow him as Lord and Savior that they would be invited to his table. And the Bible says that, you know, before he, or as he was having this communion, he had a lot of face-to-face conversations with his disciples. This is where he had the conversation with Peter about Peter denying him. This is where he had the conversation uh, with Judas about Judas betraying him. And yet, they were unified under one thing, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so when we celebrate Holy Communion together, not only is it a declaration of the gospel for us individually, but it's also a declaration that by his body and blood that we're in this thing together. And so on that night, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, you do so in remembrance of me. And he held up the cup and he said, this is my blood. It represents a new covenant. The old covenant was a covenant of law. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. And as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Would you please pray with me? Our good and gracious heavenly father. God, I thank you so much that when you looked upon this earth and you saw us wretched and broken and lost and depraved, God, that you didn't just pray something, but you did something. That you so loved the world that you sent your only begotten son. And that whosoever.
ever would believe or trust or commit their whole life to him. Whosoever, God. No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter who we've become, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And God, I pray that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, that we are reminded that you came and you died and you resurrected on the third day and you ascended to the right hand of God the Father and that you are on your way back. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're sitting on the end rows, would you please uh, take the communion elements and begin to pass them down? Everyone who is a follower of Jesus is invited to partake. This is not my table. This is not 1122's table. This is the Lord's table. And in the book of Corinthians, the apostle Paul has the right to the church of Corinth, and he's got to warn the church because they're not doing communion right. People would show up hungry, and they'd eat all the communion elements before they got to communion in the church. That means the people that came during the third song didn't get to do communion because all the first-timers, they would eat it all up. And imagine this. They didn't just use the little, like, little, like, mini cups of grape juice. They used the real leaded stuff. And so people were getting hammered at communion. It's in the Bible. You should read your Bible. Paul says, what? That's just what it says. What? Exclamation point. It's like, what are you doing? And so Paul says, whenever you take communion, you should examine yourself. You should reflect. You should examine your heart. And that by Christ's broken body and shed blood, you should confess your sins. But you're not confessing your sins so that you will be forgiven. You're confessing that by the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus, you have been forgiven. So why don't you take a minute, bow your head, examine your heart, confess that when Jesus died on the cross and says it is finished, it counted for you. And on that night, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And as often as you eat of this, you do so in remembrance of me. And then he held up the cup. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. Now, if you would please stand as we respond. You see, God is first, God initiates, and we respond. That's what worship is. Worship is our response to God for who he is and what he's done. We respond by worshiping God financially. If you're a regular here, we bring our tithes and our offerings, our first and our best to God because he first loved us by giving us his best. We respond by singing. We're gonna join our voices together. The Bible says, and they went out singing psalms. And so we are gonna sing unto the Lord and we respond by casting all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. So some of you need to come and pray, God, would you put those kind of accountable relationships in my life? And listen, your prayers work just as good in your chair as they do up here, but trust me on this one. There's something about getting out of your seat and coming down and kneeling before the Lord. I'm telling you, God moves when we move. And some of you know you gotta walk into difficult situations and difficult conversations this week. And you need to pray like crazy for the strength and the power and the gentleness of the Holy Spirit to speak into that relationship. So let us respond.